Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Today, we're discussing beliefs about music in the early church and what to do about giving and offering if you're in the choir and singing during the offertory itself. Hi, I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. First up today, we have a listener's question about how churches pass an offering plate to the choir. And then we'll introduce a new kind of segment today, Let's Think About Music. And today we're thinking about what the church fathers and other leaders in the early church had to say about music. So first, this question comes from Kirsten. She writes, It drives me nuts when choir members have no easy way to participate in the offering. Often there's no plate, and the choir is maybe even singing during the offering. Sometimes it's possible to dash up right after the service and stick an envelope in the plate at the front, but sometimes it's whisked away before choir members would even have a chance to get there, especially if you're staying put and listening to the postlude. Basically, this is a hint to churches. If you want choir members to contribute financially, don't make it hard to do so. Do you have any like particular thoughts come to mind? I didn't know, so I wouldn't have asked on Facebook. Actually, wow, this is funny. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think now. No, no one comes up to the choir loft when the choir is singing at St. Jude's to take. Yeah, I don't know. I really had no idea either. So I went on Facebook, the place to ask, and I asked what other people do in churches. And a shout out to the I'm a church choir director and or organist group who responded to my questions. I had something like 25, 30 people respond. It was really uh, really fantastic. And I'll have a link to the group in this week's show notes. From what folks said, there seem to be five basic strategies that churches can use so that choir members can give an offering. And the first one is having an offering plate in the choir room with either a person designated to take that plate and put it with the regular offering plates or give it to an usher or an usher comes to the choir room and picks it up. Right, that makes sense. The next one is pretty related, leaving the offerings in a designated place for the usher to pick up. Right, like if you have a box or something in your either your rehearsal space or if you're in the loft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then another one is having the offering plates out in an accessible area before the service begins so choir members can leave their offering there before the service and that could be like out on a table basically in front of the altar or as the altar depending on the denomination of the church what kind of furniture is at the front of the church and whether the choir is processor or not whether they're even going to be at the front of the church right right the fourth one is having a box for offerings in the foyer or another place in the church and personally i think that this is the best strategy so that someone who has to leave during the offertory or otherwise just isn't able to give their offering during the offertory itself they're still able to leave an offering and it's also a um, secure place. I think a problem with all the ones that we've mentioned so far is that someone could actually steal what is left in the offering plates because potentially loose money is left out. While you would hope that that would never happen in a church, in fact, it does happen in churches. And having a secure box in the foyer or another place is, I think, a really great thing. And I've actually been in churches that didn't take an offering and only had this box where people could leave their offerings. Yeah, and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that we have slots in the wall in the in the foyer at St. Jude's marked parish offerings. Oh, yeah, exactly. I think, I think there's one for the parish offering, and I think there's one for the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Yeah, so yeah, so it's it's a secure place. It doesn't have to be monitored. No one has to remember to pick it up, and it's actually a really simple thing to implement. 
the last one is and quite a lot of people mentioned that their parish or their church does electronic giving. And while that won't work for everyone, it is an option that many parishes seem to use. So thanks to everyone in that Facebook group for responding to my question. And thanks to Kirsten for asking the question in the first place. Do you have a question? Ask away and we'll find the answers for you. Email us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. Next up, let's think about music in the early church. When people talk about the church fathers or leaders in the early church, a lot of times the tendency is to just pull out a little quote that supports their own point. Which is devoid of contextualization. Completely devoid of contextualization, especially when the topic is music. And you know what? Music, we think we know what music is, but music means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. Right. So there's the famous quote from Augustine about singing the Psalms that gets pulled out all the time. Oh, yeah. And there's... The isn't there a quote attributed to Chrysostom? I think it is about it's David first, middle, and last. David first, middle, and last about singing the Psalms. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. so you hear, you know, like yeah, soundbitey quotes. You know, mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. that seem to reinforce whatever you particularly want to say at the minute. You know, usually either talking about the place of the Psalms in the church's worship, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the way in which music by moving the emotions can move the emotions towards God. In fact, that is something that the Church Fathers did say. Yes, yes. And so the Church Fathers can be kind of like a handy crutch. You could quote them in your larger context Mm -hmm, of what you mm -hmm. were saying. Oh, just to support what I'm saying now, here's Church Father so-and-so, check. There is a really fantastic book called Music in Early Christian Literature, edited by James McKinnon. Music in Early Christian Literature is a comprehensive collection of the extant passages on music by early church leaders, which in total is about 400 passages that were originally in Latin, Greek, and Syriac, and they range from the New Testament to the mid-5th century. This scope is really important because, according to McKinnon, the typical early Christian reference to music is an incidental remark made by a church father in some lengthy work on an entirely different subject. So, of course, these scattered references would make it virtually impossible for non-experts to locate, certainly those of us who don't read Latin or Greek or Syriac, but music in early Christian literature... Yes, exactly. Music in early Christian literature gathers them all together in one volume. This book has two other features that make it really useful, which is that McKinnon's translations prioritize musical accuracy, and oftentimes translations of so-and-so church leaders' sermons, they're not necessarily written by, I mean, they're not translated by a musicologist, so they're not prioritizing accurate translation of musical terms. And then the other thing that is really useful for me as a non-expert in this area is that all the passages have a really basic factual introduction. So it's not about McKinnon arguing some present-day issue, although sometimes he will make this kind of note like, musicologists, be aware of this, because there are debates within musicology about, you know, when was the Alleluia first sung and, you know, oh, like right. really, what really... what was the role of the cantor in the early exactly. congregation or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is certainly interesting and legitimate and... Music and early Christian literature's target audience is musicologists, but because it's a completely comprehensive collection, it's really useful for those of us who are interested in the more spiritual and um, practical aspects of what the early church believed about music. Yeah, and it saves you from having to read all 18 million volumes of the collected Brooks of the Church Fathers. This collection allows us to get at a picture 
of what early Christians believed about music in a way that isn't those little sound bites. Oh, so-and-so said this famous little thing, right? We can get an actual big picture on what the church believed and what they didn't believe and what they did do in church services and what they didn't do in church services. And I think that's actually one of the surprising things about how little music is mentioned in the first few centuries of Christianity. It's really not yes. until a few centuries later that music begins to be mentioned with any regularity in the writings. So why are we talking about this anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why are, we, why are we talking about this? The initial reason when we started thinking about this is because in our episode last week with Harrison Russen, who is a lecturer in music at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, Harrison mentioned the absence of instruments in most Orthodox churches and mentioned, well, it's because of church fathers centuries, centuries ago, basically condemning instruments as somehow... Um, the work of the devil. Right. Orthodox aren't the only um, denomination in the world that doesn't use instruments. Right. The Mennonites also don't, right? Yeah. Old Order Mennonites. But that's for a different reason. I went through a phase in high school where I read every tract I could find from Old Order Mennonites on musical instruments. So based on my memory from the reading that I did quite quite a while ago. <laughs> this is a great nerd moment. Oh, yeah. I, I know, right? I was like, I'm going to be like 16 years old and like find all the tracks I can find about musical instruments and why they're bad. But as I understand it, the reasoning was certainly not church father so-and-so said instruments are bad. That was not mentioned at all. It right. was, there's not a description of Christians worshiping with instruments in the New Testament. So there is certainly in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the only reference that I can think of where uh, Christians, believers are referenced in relationship to instruments, like they themselves have an instrument, is actually in Revelation. So that's not even in the practice of the early church, as it's mentioned in the New Testament. Right. But that's interesting because that contrast between the way that the Hebrews worshipped in the Old Testament and the way that the church now worships is actually a theme that comes up in the writings of the church fathers themselves. So it's interesting that the Mennonite, yeah. mm -hmm. Old Order Mennonites, would kind of arrive at that same conclusion themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Their interpretive methods don't prioritize what the early church said about really anything. Right. So they're arriving at the same conclusion via a different route. Yeah, whereas in Orthodoxy, what was said about anything christian related in the early church that has a really really high value placed on it yes i think though for us like i'm orthodox you're catholic but we also you know i'm a musicologist so i'm certainly not looking at what was said about music in early christian literature and saying yes yes this is what my church teaches that's not what musicology certainly not how musicology approaches, right no no, no. <laughs> approaches, um, passages on music whatsoever um so d definitely reading with a different kind of eye than maybe other orthodox christians but i think for us the interest is in what these early Christian leaders said about music as a spiritual practice. Yes. In that music has been used as a spiritual practice for as long as the church has been there. Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn and went out. That's as old as it gets, basically. Right, yes. And one of the interesting things is that because the culture has changed so drastically in the 1500 years or so since the last of the church fathers was writing when we read their writing on music it frequently strikes us as even risible at certain points because you know they're speaking against the use of the harp or the, the sound of the female voice is something that's really troubling for them sometimes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you think why do we care about what they're saying so i think one of the reasons why it's interesting to read and kind of wrestle with their writing is because so much of their other writing has remained current in the church's thought while they're writing on music 
for the West, anyhow, hasn't remained particularly current. And so it's interesting to see where those paths of thinking diverge and to think in terms of creative retrieval, what is it that they're getting at in their writing about music? Because we, we don't necessarily take at face value their writing on other subjects as well. We say, you know, what where are they going with this? What is the deeper thing that they're looking at? Yeah, like what is the bigger cultural picture here? Who are they even talking to? Yeah, who are they reacting against in mm-hmm. some cases? Are they talking about people who've just converted? Are they working against heresies? Are they working against paganism? Who are they talking to? And what do the symbols mean to them? Like, what does the harp mean in their particular cultural context? Yes. Because it's not about the harp itself. It's about what the harp is signaling to other people. Right. What is the culture from which they are distinguishing themselves? Yeah. Like, how are they saying that music is benefiting you spiritually? And how are they saying that music is signaling to other people your spiritual state? Yeah. And those are things that we can take away and and think about and really get something from, which is to say that even if we're not literally reading the church fathers and saying, oh gosh, I guess no more harp for me, you know, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to read them in that way, but they aren't completely irrelevant. We were reading through our notes earlier and we found one about like the warning against the crimping of the hair. And um, you know what, there are Christians today who who do not, who do not crimp their hair, but um, by and large, Christians today say, oh, that's a pretty little girl's haircut. It's not not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we aren't particularly worried about wicked. the. Yeah, we're not worried about the immorality of the curling irons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was really distressing to Saint Jerome. So. Oh, oh, very. So what the early church leaders said about music fall into basically four different categories. The first one is using music as a metaphor. So for example, Ignatius of Antioch, who was writing to the citizens of Ephesus, said, "It's fitting that you concur with the intention of your bishop, as in fact you do." For your renowned presbytery, worthy of God, is attuned to the bishop as strings to a kithara. Hence, it is that Jesus Christ is sung in your unity of mind and concordant love. So there, he's not really talking about the kithara because, in fact, probably he would have written against it if he's at all like his colleagues. It's basically a musical metaphor. And um, yes. McKinnon is kind of at great pains throughout his work to point out when a passage is clearly musical metaphor and when it is really talking about actual music making. And sometimes he'll even say, oh, it's not clear whether this is metaphor or music making, actual music making. Right. If you just yes. read the passages that are metaphorical, you think, wow, they really loved the harp, which is not actually true at all. Yeah, and the trumpets and the psalteries and people singing together and actually... Actually, no. So that's the first category. And then the, the second category is music as an academic discipline, as in the Ars Musica. And that's really basically them saying music music is great. Oh, wait, it's not actually music that we're talking about, but math. Right. And we see this when the church fathers begin to be distinctly influenced by the influence of Greek philosophy in their theology. And so taking the idea of the ideal music, which kind of marries into their using music as a metaphor, because the music that is perfect isn't even the music that's heard. Yeah, which is somehow, can, can somehow be related to Gnosticism and the physical world and the spiritual world. But that's that's a yes. kind of another thing for another day. The really interesting stuff for our purposes are the third and fourth categories. Right, which discuss music as it actually is. <laughs> yes, music as it actually is. Pagan music, bad and then the fourth category, music as it was in the church and how they wanted it to be in the church. So we're going to talk about this no pagan music and this 
here's how Christians should use music. Those two categories. Those are the really interesting ones for our purposes. So in discussing no pagan music, which essentially means no instruments, which was associated with pagan worship in antiquity, this is the one in which the church fathers are arguing against music's power to sway people towards sexual immorality. So for instance, Clement of Alexandria says, After reverently attending to the discourse about God, they left what they had heard within, while outside they amused themselves with godless things, with the plucking of strings and the erotic wailing of the aulos, defiling themselves with dancing, drunkenness, and every sort of trash. Those who sing thus and sing in response are those who hymned immortality before, but sing finally, wicked and wickedly, that vicious recantation, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The problem that Clement is seeing is that these aren't just pagans, these are Christians who have just come out of Christian worship, you know, singing the Sanctus, singing the Psalms, and now they go outside and hear the worldly music what he describes as the erotic wailing of the aulos, and they are using that music to participate in activities that Clement is then condemning. Yeah, and I have to say, when I read this, I was thinking about how in a, a certain area of popular music making today, there is that similar impulse. You only live once, baby, let's do it tonight. That whole spirit of, well, tomorrow we're going to die, so let's have a party right now. Right. Which actually sets this passage apart from a lot of what they said, which really feel very, very far from what we're doing right now. It, it just feels really culturally far. Whereas here in this particular moment of what Clement of Alexandria was saying, there's a certain congruence with what we have in our own culture in a certain segment of popular music. Yes. We should say that we're, we're being very mild right now. To say that the church father fathers were polemical about instruments is a vast understatement. They're extremely strong wording and uh, vivid wording in, in the wickedness accompanying instrumental music and the, the wickedness yes. that it impels people toward. They get really, really, really strong wording in how they describe this stuff. However, I think that we should also say that it's not that they weren't aware of cultural differences. And we have at least one instance from a Novation who lived from about 200 to 258. He mentions cultural differences. So what Novation said is that David led dancing in the sight of God is no excuse for the Christian faithful to sit in the theater, for he did not distort his limbs in obscene gestures while dancing to a tale of Grecian lust. And then he lists a number of instruments. The nobles, canuras, tibias, tympana, and kithras played for God, not an idol. It is not thereby permitted that unlawful things be seen. By a trick of the devil, sacred things have been transferred into illicit ones. So basically what he's saying is like, just because you have instruments mentioned in the Old Testament, just because you have dancing mentioned in the Old Testament, doesn't mean that you get to do that today because the cultural associations are different. Yes, which which is an acknowledgement in, in a kind of an opposite direction from what we would perhaps intuit when we think of cultural differences. They're saying the cultural difference is that once these instruments were good, now they're viewed as bad, which is, which is a bit different from what we would... <laughs> naturally associate when, when you're thinking about contextualizing cultural differences. So in addition to this idea of perhaps there's a cultural difference between mentions of instruments and dancing in the Old Testament and what was being advocated for in terms of practice in the early church, there's also this idea of instruments being a concession in Old Testament times, a concession that is no longer applicable 
in the present day of the early church. Right, and a lot of this dwells on the contrast that the church fathers continually made between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we have um, a passage from John Chrysostom, uh, who lived from about 349 to 407, and he's describing instruments as a concession. Some also take the meaning of these instruments allegorically and say that the tympanum calls for the death of the flesh and that the psaltery looks to heaven. And indeed, this instrument is moved from above, not from below like the kithara. But I would say this, that in ancient times, they were thus led by these instruments due to the slowness of their understanding and were gradually drawn away from idolatry. Accordingly, just as he, that's God, allowed sacrifices, so too did he permit instruments, making concession to their weakness. And Theodore of Cyrus, who lived from 423 to 457, says something very similar when he says, What he, God, ordained in the law then concerning these things was because of their weakness, not their need or their intention. And then he quotes, Amos, saying, Take away from me the sound of your songs, to the voice of your instruments I will not listen. And then Theodore goes on to say, There are many other such passages to be found which show clearly that God prescribed these practices, that is, music, not because he had need of sacrifices, etc., etc., or the musical instruments, but because he was considering a remedy for them. Yeah, yeah. And this actually is something that we're going to come back to when we're talking about what music was being advocated for. And that's this idea that music is somehow a concession for our weak spiritual state. Yeah, it's a provision being made for us. It's the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. The music helps the doctrines be palatable to us. So even even sometimes when music is being praised or advocated for, it's in that context of like, well, you need it because you're weak. Yes. This is the milk and not the meat of the word. So then the fourth category is music as it was actually used and praised in its use. And this includes music in Eucharistic services, music in the common or agape meal, and then psalmody more generally, especially in the daily life of monks and nuns and other devout Christians. So one of the interesting things is that in the earliest description of Christian worship uh, found in Justin Martyr's writings, which comes from the first century after Christ's death. One of the very yes. early very, very early writings. And he doesn't make any mention of music in the early Eucharistic services, which is fascinating because he's, he's a testament to the early institution of Eucharistic liturgies in the church, but he makes no mention of singing in them. It's a really detailed description. It begins, and on the day named for the sun, there is an assembly in one place for all who live in the towns and in the country. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has finished, he who presides speaks, giving admonishment and exhortation to imitate these noble deeds. Then we all stand together and offer prayers. And when, as we said above, we are finished with the prayers, bread is brought and wine and water, and he who presides likewise offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people give their assent by exclaiming, Amen. And there takes place the distribution to each and the partaking of that over which thanksgiving has been said, and it is brought to those not present by the deacon. So, no music, and that's a very clear description of a Eucharistic service. Yeah, he mentions solemn prayers and hymns elsewhere in his writing, but not particularly mm -hmm. within the context of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing here is that it seems that it's probably the case that while there may not have been singing in that Eucharistic setting, there was definitely singing in other settings, especially this agape meal or the common meal. And that's something that Tertullian mentions. And Tertullian is also fairly early. He lived from about 170 to 225 in Carthage. So also definitely on the early side as far as these church leaders go. 
Tertullian, in talking about this common or agape meal, he says, Our meal reveals its meaning in its very name. It is called that which signifies love among Greeks. One does not recline at table without first savoring a prayer to God, and then one eats what the hungry would take and drinks what would serve the needs of the temperate. They thus satisfied themselves as those who remember that God is to be worshipped even at night, and they converse as do those who know that God listens. After the washing of hands and the lighting of lamps, each is urged to come into the middle and sing to God, either from the sacred scriptures or from his own invention. In this way is the manner of his drinking tested. Similarly, the banquet is brought to a close with prayer. So this actually relates to this other particularly interesting thing, which is that extra biblical or newly written songs, songs that are not psalmody, have been recorded from the very earliest days of the church. Yes, there isn't a prohibition against them in the same way that there is a prohibition against instrumental music, for example. Yeah, these newly written songs seem to be in the New Testament itself, and then it's mentioned, actually Tertullian mentions it. Not only was the singing of psalms and hymns encouraged, but there was also an aesthetic pleasurable dimension to them as well. Cyprian, who lived in the 3rd century, is also describing singing after the evening meal, and he says, Now as the sun is sinking towards evening, let us spend what remains of the day in gladness, and not allow the hour of repast to go untouched by heavenly grace. Let a psalm be heard at the sober banquet, and since your memory is sure and your voice pleasant, Undertake this task as is your custom. You will better nurture your friends if you provide a spiritual recital for us and beguile our ears with sweet religious strains. Which certainly seems to take for granted the pleasure of hearing the singing. Yeah, this is also something that Tertullian mentions in the context of a husband and wife singing to each other. Um, he says, Psalms and hymns sound between the two of them, and they challenge each other to see who better sings to the Lord. Seeing and hearing this, Christ rejoices. He sends them his peace. Where two come together, there is he also. And where he is, there the evil one is not. Which is interesting because it's a very located in reality example taken from something else that is often seen in the church fathers as metaphor, which is the union between a husband and wife. So here we have the ultimate symbols, a husband and wife, you know, the symbol of sexuality existing in relation to Christ and the church, singing to each other, and singing is often taken as a symbol by the church fathers, and here it's actually existing in reality, and fleshed, a husband and yeah, wife yeah. singing to each other. This is why it's so important to be able to distinguish between what is metaphorical and what is talking about actual practice, yes. because they aren't necessarily right. one and the same. So what these authors are getting at is why we should sing. And according to them, the first justification is that singing is like a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. And this is something that both Basil the Great, who lived from about 330 to 379 in Cappadocia, and John Chrysostom, who we mentioned already, um, 347 to 407 in Antioch, both Basil the Great and John Chrysostom talk about psalm singing in this metaphor, honey on the rim of a cup. It's to help you get the doctrine into your life. I have this image of like Mary Poppins singing, but in fact, this is a, a good old bishop. Oh, I know, right? And um, Yes. <laughs> I love it. So uh, Basil the Great writes, what did the Holy Spirit do when he saw that the human race was not led easily to virtue and that due to our penchant for pleasure, we gave little heed to an upright life? He mixed sweetness of melody with doctrine so that inadvertently we would absorb the benefit of the words through gentleness and ease of hearing. 
Just as clever physicians frequently smear the cup with honey when giving the fastidious some rather bitter medicine to drink, thus he, the Holy Spirit, contrived for us these harmonious psalm tunes so that while those who are children in actual age, as well as those who are young in behavior, while appearing only to sing, would in reality be training their souls. For not one of these many indifferent people ever leaves church easily retaining in memory some maxim of either the apostles or the prophets, but they do sing the text of the Psalms at home and circulate them in the marketplace. And so we should know that this is not a particularly high theology of music itself. It's not that the music is inherently good or that enjoying it is good. It's that because, you know, dummies like yourself will keep a tune in your head. It's the same way that um, we teach children the alphabet song rather than saying A, B, C, D. Right. And you're not arguing for the importance of the alphabet song as a great piece of music. You probably don't care about the alphabet song itself, but mm -hmm. you're just using it as yeah. a medium. Contrasting with that a little bit, even though discussing music's pedagogical capacity, John Chrysostom writes that when God saw that the majority of men were slothful and that they approached spiritual reading with reluctance and submitted the effort involved without pleasure, wishing to make the task more agreeable and to relieve the sense of labor, he mixed melody with prophecy, so that, enticed by the rhythm and melody, all might raise sacred hymns to him with great eagerness. And then, this is a really positive description of music. He says, For nothing so arouses the soul, gives it wing, sets it free from the earth, releases it from the prison of the body, teaches it to love wisdom and to condemn all the things of this life, as concordant melody and sacred song composed in rhythm. So, he may not be very happy about the body, which he's just discussed as a prison, but he seems mm -hmm. pretty positive mm -hmm. about music. Yeah. Well, at least psalm singing, a certain kind of music. Yes, the, the approved music. That's something that Chrysostom also says in regards to music being for our salvation. Yeah, Chrysostom says, just as he, God, accepted sacrifices while not needing sacrifices, and this is a distinction that was made earlier, if I were hungry, he says, I would not tell you, referring to God, but rather to lead men to honor him, so too does he accept hymns while not needing our praise, but rather because he desires our salvation. So again, music as a pedagogical tool to accomplish the desired effect, which is that we would honor and praise God for our own salvation. So while this is the main point of the church fathers who are speaking positively about music, that music is this vehicle that does something for us spiritually, but is not necessarily itself something good, that's not always how it's framed. Athanasius, who lived from about 296 to 373 and was from Alexandria, he actually speaks very positively of music itself and singing itself. He says, Why are words of this sort sung with melody and song? We must not disregard this either. Some of the simple ones among us, even while believing the texts to be divinely inspired, still think that the psalms are sung melodiously for the sake of good sound and the pleasure of the ear. This is not so. Scripture has not sought what is sweet and persuasive. Rather, this was ordained to benefit the soul for every reason, but principally these two. First, because it was proper for divine scripture to hymn God, not only with continuity, but with expanse of voice. And that's, that's where Athanasius is getting at this idea that singing itself can be a good thing. First, it was proper for divine scripture to hymn God, not only with continuity, but with expanse of voice. Recited with continuity, then, are such words as those of the law and the prophets, and all those of history along with the New Testament. 
while recited with expanse, are those of psalms, odes, and songs. And thus it is assured that men love God with their entire strength and capability. That's really strong praise for singing, right? Yeah, it is. And then he goes on. Secondly, because as harmony creates a single concord in joining together the two pipes of the aulos, so reason wills that a man be not disharmonious with himself, nor at variance with himself, so as to consider what is best, but to accomplish with his inclination what is mean, as when Pilate says, I find no crime in him, but concurs with the judgment of the Jews. So here, I kind of wonder, well, is he talking about metaphor there because he's saying something positive about an instrument? Maybe he's getting more metaphorical here. But then he brings it, Athanasius brings this into a really pragmatic place where he's saying the harmonious within yourself, as happens in music, that teaches us something spiritual. Yeah, so in a sense, music is sacramental. Yeah. I don't want to read too much into this because, again, this is one phrase, you know, from something that is you know, not, it's not, he's not writing a treatise on why music is so great. Right, right, right. But that, that certainly hints at an idea that, that there is something possibly bigger going on here. Yes. And it's an important part of the balanced picture of the early church views on music. Yeah. Which, which is why this, you know, to go back to this book that McKinnon edited, this is why it's so useful because to take just one passage is to disregard all the context. Yes. If you, if you just yes, exactly. if you just read that, you might think, oh, he's he's really positive about the owls. Probably not. <laughs> On the whole, no, it, it would seem otherwise. <laughs> yes. If if this is a true or false uh, question, the answer is false. No, no. In fact, he does not think it's a good thing. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about Jerome and Augustine, and then we'll be we'll be finishing up. Jerome lived from about 341 to 420, and he was one of the Western Church Fathers. And he says, We ought therefore to sing and to make melody and to praise the Lord more with spirit than the voice. This, in fact, is what is said, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Let youth hear this. Let them hear it whose duty it is to sing in the church, that God is to be sung to, not with the voice, but with the heart, not endowing the mouth and throat with some sweet medicine after the manner of tragedians, so that theatrical melodies and songs are heard in the church, but in fear, in work, and in knowledge of the scriptures. And although one might be, as they are wont to say, cacophonous, if he has performed good works, he is a sweet singer before God. Thus let the servant of Christ sing, so that not the voice of the singer, but the words that are read give pleasure, in order that the evil spirit which was in Saul be cast out from those similarly possessed by it, and not introduced into those who have made God's house a popular theater. Ouch. I bet people in the worship wars would love to soundbite that one. Yeah. <laughs> that is a nice little soundbite if, if you have an axe to grind. Yeah, I, w I would point out that the passage literally right below that in, in this collection is Jerome's insistence that women should be silent in church and should not sing because they should sing in private at home. So, I mean... <laughs> Within within larger contexts, some of their views are difficult to swallow. Now we remember who it is. This is this is the guy concerned with the curling iron. So yes, yes. Uh, you know this is this is again not to not to belabor the point, but this is why it's so important to be aware of the context and the bigger picture of of what these these folks are saying, because it's easy to say, "Ha ha! I have proved my point. Jerome said it, and therefore it's true. And my mass should not have a guitar in it." Get your guitar right, out of right, mass. right. You know, you know, like which is, you know, you see that. I, I mean, I, I research um, 
the worship wars for, for my main area of research. Um, so I was, you see a lot of folks who, who really glom onto this. Oh, he, he said it, so it must be true. I, I have some churchly authority. Yeah, but within within the larger context of his writing, you don't necessarily want to make a point based on an argument whose main points you are opposed to. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, or or whose details you are not willing to follow because actually you really like a curling iron. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, associations change, and I think the uh, the public theater in the past is not the same as the public theater today. Things change. I think we need to end with Augustine. So some of the most famous references to music in the Church Fathers occur in Augustine. So Augustine lived in 354 to 430, and he lived in North Africa. And he's essentially the latest of the Church Fathers that we'll be looking at. And in fact, concludes concludes McKinnon's book. Augustine's writings are perhaps the ones that are quoted the most often because he tells some really... Um, poignant stories about how he personally responded to music. Yeah, like there's this excerpt from the Confessions, which is quoted all the time. How much I wept at your hymns and canticles, deeply moved by the voices of your sweetly singing church. Those voices flowed into my ears, and the truth was poured out in my heart, whence a feeling of piety surged up, and my tears ran down, and these things were good for me. So Augustine, much as he seems to have enjoyed music, expresses really, really mixed feelings about what sung music can do that simple spoken words cannot do. And in a sense, in Augustine, we meet our own appreciation of the beauty of music for music's sake, which Augustine also seems to share. He seems to share, but he's very worried about that and concerned about it in himself. We meet that with the early church fathers suspicion of music's ability to lead one away from what was of true value. So in Augustine, we kind of, we get both of these mingled together pretty thoroughly. Yeah, so at one point in the Confessions, he's wondering whether it would not be better that we had no sung music in church. But then he says, When I recall the tears which I shed at the song of the church in the first days of my recovered faith, and even now, as I am moved not by the song, but by the things which are sung, when sung with fluent voice and music that is most appropriate, I acknowledge again the great benefit of this practice. Thus, I vacillate between the peril of pleasure and the value of the experience, and I am led more, while advocating no irrevocable position, to endorse the custom of singing in church, so that by the pleasure of hearing, the weaker soul might be elevated to an attitude of devotion. Yet, when it happens to me that the song moves me more than the thing which is sung, I confess that I have sinned blamefully and then prefer not to hear the singer. Yeah, which is which is a pretty solid summation of this argument between the appreciation of the good that music does and the early church fathers worry about music's ability to draw you away from the contemplation of God. Because I think Augustine sums it up really, really well at this point. Yeah, he really does, because this is a question that we frequently have in churches today. Should we have music that is purely instrumental with no associated words? And most of us are in churches where instrumental music is approved of, but sometimes it's just as the accompaniment to the words, as the vehicle for the words, not necessarily as music itself. We've covered a lot of ground here. We started by talking about music as a metaphor, 
And then we talked about music as an academic discipline, which is to say not really music at all. And then we dove into the polemic against pagan music, against instruments that forms the bulk of what the church fathers had to say about music and practice. And then finally, we moved to thinking about what they said about actual church music in a positive or moderately positive way. And I think Augustine is really where things get summed up, which is that there's really no strongly positive music itself is great. It's just not there. There isn't a strong theology of art as revealing God in itself. Art, specifically in this case music, has to reveal God through illuminating the scriptures. That's actually very important that we draw this out, because if you read the Church Fathers without realizing how much musical metaphor and music as an academic discipline they're talking about, you might think that actually they are talking about, oh, music is so great, music is so great. But the music of the spheres isn't music. Like, it's not. It's not music that you're going to actually perform in church. The music of the spheres is not something that you can hear, and certainly not something that they could hear. So for us as church musicians and people who think about church music, it's basically irrelevant, and it's misleading to say, oh, the church fathers had so much good stuff to say about music, when in fact they're they're not talking about music as we would use the term today. Yes. They're talking about an idealized music, which could be theoretically appreciated for the way in which it models how we should be united together in the praise of God, metaphorically. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a kind of an interesting uh, place that we're leaving off here. We weren't trying to get to any conclusions, but... No, and which is good because we don't have any conclusions. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> But it does it does definitely lead to interesting questions for us as musicians today, just to think about, oh, this is what people at a very, very different time and place thought about music. And is there something also to think about the way they talked about music in the other things that they had to say? And that's, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave that to other people. I'm speaking here as a musicologist, not as a theologian. It does point out their massive cultural differences from how we think about music today. And that's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. If you want to find out more about music in early Christianity, check out this week's show notes at musicandthechurch.com 12. So what do you think about this topic? Share your thoughts by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with friends. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.